do design decisions involve value judgments? Andy Halliwell has gone and posted this question on LinkedIn as part of our redesigning D&T project and debates. I think this is a really tricky one to answer and our expert group felt that it was an important question that needed debating. Do design decisions involve value judgments? I think firstly, I'd be saying, what do you mean by a value judgment, a values judgment? And maybe in your response to Andy's question, you'll explore what you understand and what your views are of what value judgments are and then whether they actually impinge on or affect the design decisions that designers make and also that children make in D&T lessons. So do join the debate. We're always open to conversation and discussion on this. But for now, on to the next episode. This is the Talking D&T podcast, episode 33. Welcome to the Talking D&T podcast with me, Alison Hardy, a podcast for anybody interested in design and technology education, where I'll be sharing news, views, ideas and opinions about D&T. This week's episode is a little bit different. It's the first of four parts and two of the parts will be released this week and two, the next two parts will be released in two weeks' time. It's a conversation that I had with Court Seaman back earlier in the year and Court is talking about his different ideas about design and technology knowledge. This is part of the ongoing conversations and thinking that I've been having with Eddie Norman and with others about epistemology and design and technology. Court brings a different perspective, so I really hope you enjoy listening to it. I wanted to split it over four because it's a really fascinating topic and Court breaks it down really clearly into these different sections. So I felt that this time it worked better as these different episodes. So enjoy listening. The next one will be out later this week and the following two will be out shortly. In this episode, I'm with Court Seaman, who is currently um in where did you say you were this morning you had a meeting this morning with yes hi Alison yes I'm in Canberra I just had a meeting with one of the federal government's department of foreign affairs and trade uh research and development impact group and we advise on policy to do with community development aid and I sit on it from a design technology and education perspective so so you're kind of involved in some really exciting policy work there around uh technology education in Australia um, but where <clears throat> we've come together this morning because Court and I had conversations a few years ago about epistemology and knowledge in design and technology and what it was as a discipline. So if you could start us off, Court, by just sort of saying a little bit about who you are, where you are, what you do, and then we'll launch into this big topic about epistemology. Yes, thanks, Alison. So I was trained in what we now call a design technology teacher degree and have been teaching for 14 years in a uh, senior secondary college and also in uh, as a head teacher, head of department, and also taught in a Catholic school. Back then my training was through a remarkable and unusual degree in the 80s here in Australia at the University of New South Wales. It was a Bachelor of Science in the Industrial Arts Education with a uh, add-on fifth year for a honours thesis, which was also in education. It was an intense integrated program for three years of industrial and social psychology, education and three years of product design and manufacturing engineering, three years of uh, graphics and uh, and also quite a big degree designed for both to qualify us as industry consultants 
to promote innovation, design and creativity in the manufacturing sector and workplace, but also to be a design technology school teacher. We were trying to understand how people in their made world interact to produce innovations, basically. The industrial social psychology was to train us in social innovation, creativity and, and all those human factors affecting design, usability and uptake. In my technology area, I also specialise in what's called ethnotechnology or traditional technologies. This major later was renamed industrial archaeology to give you a feel for what we studied. It basically looked at material culture and helped us uh, do assessments for the Australian National Trust Assessment on buildings. And with that background, my first project, uh, just before I was uh, finishing my first undergraduate degree, uh, was to join a UNESCO team to look at education and social organisation in the Solomon Islands for a uh, aid program there. And my role was to look at how socially sustainable a microhydroelectric project was and also to redesign uh, the cups on what we call the Kelton Cup Turbine. Uh, that was great. And that's where I started to discover elements of cross-cultural understanding of how people perceive their material world. On uh, graduating as a secondary teacher, I found myself teaching in a Catholic school in Australia and then uh, teaching for 14 years as the lead teacher, as noted, in Central Australia, where I worked in a uh, secondary to an Aboriginal research and education organisation there. This is where I located the fieldwork of my PhD, which was focusing on cross-cultural design and technology capability among traditional Aboriginal people, particularly in communities in the western central deserts of Australia, where, by the way, the first group had contact with Europeans just recently in 1985, which is remarkable. So that gave me an opportunity to really think through the cultural baggage that we as Westerners have as to what we think technology education is when we look across quite different cultural and contextual domains and of uh, how different people think about this made world as a makerspace in their, in their environment. In years since, I've found my background has evolved or rather rebranded itself into uh, what we now often hear as uh, design anthropology. But I'm still an educationist at heart and we can talk about that a bit more. I also, uh, I should mention that I was uh, the uh, degree director for the first uh, technology and design initial teacher education degree at uh, Southern Cross University between 1999 and, and about 2008 or nine, where I um, wrote literally the four-year degree and uh, got it started. And it's still, it's still carrying on with my colleagues there at Southern Cross Uni, which is great. And uh, I really enjoyed that uh, degree. It had a lot of innovation um, focus in it. Okay, thanks for setting that scene, Court. That's really helpful. So could you now give us a little bit of an overview around what you mean by this word technocy and how that fits with your ideas about knowledge in design and technology? Yeah, well, I need to set the scene for technocy first because it's not just a word. This is the first thing to understand, although it is in the Macquarie Standard Dictionary in Australia. It's a theory or model of the way we conceptually form, share, validate knowledge, through the materialization, or if you like, manifestation of our ideas. So technicity theory came out of two lines of my work. A critical philosophy of technology education in my honours thesis in 1986, and a critical examination of human praxis, particularly the social 
cultural and technical systems aspect of how we make our world. So when I was studying my undergraduate degree, I was always puzzled with this idea that we didn't really have a way in the classroom to define this design technology capability as both a way of knowing and yet also, if not essential, a way for other subjects across the curriculum to enhance their field. Let's call it a T-shaped subject in that it has both a unique specialization of depth and abstract classification, unique modes of knowledge validation, and focus or genres of specialization. The vertical stroke of a capital T, if you like. And it offered essential assistance to other subject areas across the curriculum, the horizontal stroke across the top of the letter capital T. I was looking at the philosophy of technological knowledge in terms of its abstract form, its epistemology. To compare, uh, the study of English is similar. You know, you, you have a vertical focus and depth to its form, its grammar, its syntax, its styles and types. And there's a utility aspect that supports other subjects across the curriculum, usually known as functional literacy. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to set a, um, a science or physics or art or maths exam without using words. Uh, and so this is the literacy area that supports other subjects. Uh, math is the same. It has a vertical focus of depth of different forms of mathematics, mathematical proofs, and so on. But it has a, a cross-curriculum utility of functional numeracy, so it's, it's pretty hard for science to uh, declare itself as unique without sort of borrowing from concepts of mathematics. And so I assert that for the listeners, that design technology has a vertical form of focus and depth. And it has a cross-curriculum utility of functional technicity. So the nouns are literacy, numeracy, technicity, and the adjectives are literate, numerate, and technate. And just like you have at the basic end of literacy, the ability to say, write one's name, uh, maybe read a limited range of words, and uh, then at the upper end, you have uh, text understood in context of the story or the paragraph. There is the higher cognitive level of what we call in reading and writing inferential comprehension and the uh, ability to craft such depth in the nuance of writing too. And I said that so too in technicity you have the basic limited level of familiarity with a few tools uh, including your hands and teeth as tools and one um, on one-to-one -one relationships you know you have uh, creative skills at one where you can see that uh, you might use one nail, one hammer, one length of wood. These are one-to-one -one relationships at the basic end. And at the higher end of cognition, uh, you have inferential cognition presented as uh, displaying nuance and innovative technological comprehension for the choice, uh, for the design of technologies towards an optimized transformation of the world that works in the context of its intended use. And this is pretty important a pioneering level in cognition that I refer to as being able to transition ideas into applied material, visual and digital synthesis. This ability to transition ideas into applied synthesis is pretty much in the ballpark of technology education at the higher end. Not everybody can do it and it's, not, and it's got some unique features to it when you do it technologically. So let's pause for a sec here and appreciate that there is depth and testable assertions to this logic of technicity. 
So let me chart this out a bit for the listeners. So in 1986, I wrote my honours thesis, which was apparently the first externally examined honours thesis known, at least in Australia at the time, about 30,000 words on the philosophy of technology education. I was influenced by praxis, in in particular the social material dimension of Karl Marx's account of historical materialism and Marx Lutowski's work on the false divide between art design and technology. I was also influenced to some degree by R.S. Peters' work on holistic education and numerous other educationists such as John Dewey, which we'll come to again a little bit later. And it came to pass that there indeed is a knowledge structure phenomena uh, that underpins all technological ways of knowing. Uh, and this is a pretty big idea. This is no small matter as it means there is something that there that we can study because it has a pattern, a form of knowing, an abstract structure to discover, to classify, and unique methods to validate and evolve that knowledge behind it. And if we can study it as a pattern, we need to understand what the principles are behind the pattern of making the world. In other words, designing and working technologically, which is a phrase I use a lot, is without question a real discipline. It has its own unique form of knowing the world, the world we make, including the world we program. When I went to the central deserts of Australia, I had to do my PhD, I had the opportunity to develop Australia's first national curriculum, and that was in applied design technology. The thing that struck me there was that in practice, remote Aboriginal elders and youth would say they were frustrated that whenever, you know, the European government offices of builders and housing staff would come in and ask them about public housing and infrastructure and all this technology stuff, they were unable to sort of express what they wanted to have because the whitefellas couldn't perceive that technology had to be understood in its context. The architects were concerned about the aesthetic and placement and cost efficiency of the build The engineers were concerned about the compliance and structures based on urban living standards and urban economics. But the elders one day asked, what's that word you whitefellas use to demonstrate that you have a contextual understanding about technology? So you make decisions more about its context. I said, good point. I don't know that word. I'll ask the editors of the Australian Standard Dictionary, the Macquarie Dictionary in Australia, as I could not find that term in my efforts in any dictionary. Uh, We have technical skill words like techniques, or we have clumsy catchphrases like technological literacy, which has no theory or foundation in, in the phenomena of technological knowledge at all. Really, as its meaning shifts from our jurisdictions, could technological literacy be computer skills, which it is sometimes interpreted as? Could be science and digital tech and engineering skills. Who knows? Technological literacy seems to be a whatever you want it to be. There's no foundation to its theory. And uh, I stand by that. Okay, so you've given us quite a lot to think about just in that short overview of uh, the idea about technology and and where your thinking has come from and its grounding. Um, So could you tell us a little bit more about this pattern and its its unique structure? Yeah, so what we were looking at was a testable construct. This is really important for understanding the depth of technological knowledge and its nuances and branches. We'd ask 
when is something not technology? And questions like, how do I take a technological perspective? You know, we, we can bake a cake and we can take a social perspective, we can take an aesthetic perspective, we can take an economics and food science perspective. Uh, what would that look like? So asking when something is not technology knowledge is a real uh, question to ask because it gets you to think about, well, what has to be missing? A metaphor to hold in your mind for the form of technological knowledge is the fire triangle. And many of you may be familiar with uh, the basic view of a fire triangle. You have three essential elements you need for a fire to be possible. You have to have heat. You have to have a combustible fuel load. You have to have oxygen. And if you take any one of those away, away fire doesn't exist. However, it's only when these three elements come together that you create the conditions for fire, but not yet the fire itself. You need to have the same, at the same time, a spark, you know, a reason for the three elements to interact with each other. And more so, that interaction has to occur in a context that lets them interact. So you need a bounded context that permits the interaction of these elements to interact in the right way, and only then can fire exist. If any of these elements are missing, including the purpose starter of the spark, say, and its context that permits them to interact, you cannot claim fire was manifested. This is a reasonable metaphor for technicity theory. So let us start with the purposeful spark and bounded context part and see how this all works together. So technicity theory states that the basic form of all past, present and future technological knowledge cannot be missing any of the following elements in its form for technology to exist. So think of this of if you're underplaying these interactions in teaching, you're not really teaching a comprehensive understanding of any form of technology. First, you need present a purpose and context for that purpose, a boundary, a primary area in which you say, it's within this context that my design purpose or my technology choice has to be constructed, developed, chosen, and so on. Secondly, around that, you need something being transformed. Typically, we use a resource from the, our environment, our habitat, our, our ability to be in the same system in which the technology exists, uh, such as materials and energy and natural things. Thirdly, you need the presence of tools, or more precisely, tool systems to act on those resources. Fourthly, you need the presence of agency that uh, is the ability to recognise that tools and resources can go together in a certain way and interact to yield a transformation. And finally, uh, you need the abstract level, the, if you like the helicopter level, of being able to see how these four elements form a singular, unifying, mutually independent whole system as the fifth level of understanding. And it's only when you get these things interacting that you have the rudiments of technology education as a system of knowledge. If you can comprehend this whole knowledge system and make inferences from it, then you have the basics of the study, classification system, use, evaluation, validation, and discovery of any past, present, and future emerging form of technological knowledge. You are in the realm of designing and working technologically as a unique form of knowing that is as true as any other subject, a discipline.
Okay, so that's the end of the first episode in this four-part series of Conversation with Court Seaman about technological knowledge. The next episode is out later this week, followed by two more. If you want to read some more and do some homework, you can find some links in the show notes to papers and chapters that Court has published. So take a look at those and they'll help you get your head into this really fascinating topic um, that Court talks about in these different episodes. Anyway, as usual, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Talking D&T podcast with me, Alison Hardy. You can connect with me on Twitter at Hardy underscore Alison. Show notes and transcripts for each podcast episode can be found on my website, alisonhardy.work. Thanks for listening. Thank you.